Hey, it's Bao, and thanks for joining me for Coffee with Bao. This is a series where I chat over coffee with people who are doing cool stuff in business, music, entertainment, pop culture, and more. And specifically, I like to focus on topics such as creative process, personal growth, and identity. And um, since this is one of our very first episodes, I'd really appreciate your feedback on what's working and what can be improved. So please leave me a comment or contact me at coffeewithbao.com. So let's meet our guest. Today, I'm hanging out with a fellow marketing and branding professional, pop culture aficionado, and a prolific writer. His jam-packed career includes everything from dancing in a leotard to leading workshops all over US and Europe, to writing books and articles for major publications and driving marketing campaigns for massive consumer brands. And now he's fresh off the boat from an artist residency in Iceland called The Fish Factory, back to doing his favorite things as a culture, theater, travel writer, and critic. So please meet my friend and one of the funnest, most creative guys I know, Jim Gladstone. Ah, hey, Bao. Good hey, to see Jim. you. You're one of my favorite people, too. Aw, thank you. <laughs> Thanks for joining me for coffee. Are you actually drinking coffee? I am. There's a little bit left. <laughs> this awesome. is like number three of the, of the morning, though. So for the folks who can't see, Jim, your whole getup, your setup today, um, your shirt and your beret are awesome and totally fit your vibe. <laughs> I have this shirt on that's like all, um, it's, a, it's a garden produce print. It's like fruit or something. Yeah, it's, it's all, yeah, it's all, it's all veg. I was going to go with the all eggplant one, but I thought that might be too hardcore for your show. <laughs> Eggplant emoji is my favorite emoji, you know. <laughs> That's awesome. So um, you're calling in from San Francisco, which I very appreciate. Thank you. Um, however, I know that you're from Philadelphia. Um, were you born there? Like, what's your super villain origin story? <laughs> <laughs> I like that super villain origin story. The supervillain origin story is the one that leads into the marketing career, and the superhero origin story is the one that leads into the arts career. Um, I was, uh, yeah, I born and raised in Philadelphia, spent actually the greater part of my first 40 years there. Um, and uh, interestingly, my parents and all four of my grandparents were all born in Philadelphia too. Wow. And uh, my folks have never lived outside of a 10-mile radius uh, their their whole lives. So you are like the trailblazer in the family then? Yeah, I'm the one who sort of bust out of that orbit. I have, an, I have one of my two brothers also bust out of that orbit and also landed in San Francisco. Oh, cool. Um, <laughs> but uh, he's the baby brother, and it actually took me, the oldest brother, the, the longest time to uh, break free of that parental gravity and uh, really reroute someplace else. I see. So you seem like you must have been a creative kid. Like, were you a theater kid or something? <laughs> That's not an insult, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, the, yeah, the Philadelphia chapter of Glee. Um, now, uh, I mean, yeah, I was ultimately in high school a theater kid. You know, when I was a when I was a little kid, most of my creativity was very much internal because I, I grew up in a household where 
you know, my parents were were great, middle class, professionally driven, practical, and not heavily into the arts. They weren't raised with the arts. Um, yeah. You know, they had a they read the paper, you know, go to the art museum once a year, go see a, a, a touring Broadway show. Um, but I, from a very early age, started to realize just through reading the newspaper mostly that there were all sorts of weird, oddball, artistic things that sounded cool to me. And of course, I had to ask them to take me there or drive me there or whatever. And, and, and they I'm did. I'm really fortunate in that they did. That's and, awesome. You know, as a result, I think it really broke open for all of us. And we all started developing way more cultural interests. And today, you know, my parents are like, my parents see way more movies than I do. <laughs> That's and, so cool. Um, I used to be a film critic. So every, it cracked open for all of us. And we went in somewhat different, different directions. That's so super cool. cool. That's a nice story that now you're, you're all kind of like consuming creative stuff. And, you know, that's, that's a big change. Really appreciate that. Oh, I'll <clears> tell <throat> you a funny story. I have to tell you a funny story that's along these same lines. So this worked for food, too. So when I was very young, my mom was your typical, like, from a can, frozen food kind of cook. And later on, she became great. She's really good. Her, her cooking world opened up, too. Partly it was mm -hmm. when her kids were not like rugrats. But in terms of like non-American mainstream food, I remember at age 16, me and some of my high school buddies would like scurry around eating weird food. We would take the bus into <laughs> Philadelphia from the suburbs. <laughs> and we we found this Vietnamese restaurant, which was like the first Vietnamese restaurant in, in Philly. And... For, um, for the holidays that year, my gift to my family was that I took them all to dinner at this Vietnamese restaurant. And they, none of them had ever had Vietnamese food before. That's so, so it, cool. It was super cool to be like the cultural ambassador. That's so cool. And I think that really ties into what you're doing now still. Like you are exposing people to more creative stuff and more um, of the world that they normally wouldn't get a chance to. So it... I was going to ask how your childhood like ties into your current, what you're doing now, but like, it's so obvious, <laughs> you know, you're like the cultural <laughs> ambassador for all people now. Yeah, it's, that's, that's, that's true. It's, it's pretty interesting. I mean, I do get a real, I really get a happiness out of matching someone up with some cultural artifact or cultural activity that they will, that they will like a lot. And it doesn't even always have to be something that I like a lot. Um, I mean, I know there's plenty of stuff that I really dig that doesn't work for my parents. Yeah. You know, once in a while, I'll try to try to push the envelope. But I really like matching people up. I mean, this goes back to when I used to be in the bookstore business. And I loved interviewing a customer and trying to put a book in their hands that was like a book that they would love. Not pushing on them books that I would love, but being mm -hmm. widely enough read and thoughtful enough to really give people the thing that would not just be junk food, but would, would work for them. Yeah, that's super cool. That's really nice. You kind of intercepted that cultural curator role a little bit with your professional career in marketing and advertising. And that's kind of where we met. Do, do you yeah. have any like highlight stories from, from that life? <laughs> <laughs> well, 
as I think I mentioned to you, I mean, to me, I consider the whole marketing and advertising side of my career, which has made me able to do, allowed me to do a lot of the other things um, right, because right. of the financial support, you know, it's sort of like the, the, the Mr. Hyde <laughs> part of me um, and the, the creative journalism and the artwork and traveling. That's all the Dr. Jekyll and, and the Dr. Jekyll is the highlights and Mr. Hyde is the money. Um, so but also, I, I mean, I do find that one of the good things about working in marketing and advertising is, you know, creativity often blossoms with constraints and having specific parameters and goals put around you as a box and having to try to be creative within that box is a really good exercise. Um, and frankly, especially when you're younger and your mind is super wild that that's a really good good discipline and frankly a way to get started without feeling like overwhelmed like i've got so much creative stuff coming yeah. out of my head like that famous bob dylan poster by milton glazer <laughs> that i'm yeah. just gonna get cascaded in rainbows like having an assignment you know be creative about tiny little tampons in 30 seconds or less um, right. You know, that, yeah, that's totally limit. cool. That's exactly how I feel about it, too. Like in, in the design world, those parameters make the challenge and, and make everything feel um, that was the challenge for me. And that was the fun part of being a professional creative in the corporate world. It gives you kind of training wheels because like the world is your oyster can be pretty intimidating, like you say. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, if you just have a little smaller section of the world as your oyster to start, I think that's cool. So now you're like focusing a lot more, able to focus a lot more on your theater, book, music, critic work and other creative ventures. So far, what's been like some of the highlights? Have you interviewed some people that you've been like dazzled by, etc.? Oh, sure. I mean, in my in my arts journalism world. Yeah, I would say one of the real big highlights for me was two experiences I had with, with Stevie Wonder, who is like super oh. hero of mine and someone whose music I have always loved. And a Philly guy um, who I knew growing up called uh, Rob Arbiter, um has been for many years Stevie's uh, synth programmer. Um, cool. And, and, and for many of those many years, he was actually sort of like on call. And Stevie Wonder is like a notorious, he lives on his own clock. So yeah. it's like, so one time I was in LA and I went out to Wonderland Studios where Stevie was going to do a rehearsal and he got there at nine o'clock in the evening and it started at 2.30 in the evening. Um, he walked in, but it was awesome. I mean, I was literally standing like four feet away from Stevie Wonder in the midst of all these synthesizers and he's playing his his tour set, rehearsing his tour set. Oh, and I'm dancing cool. around. And to be honest, I actually, I sort of threw a punch just to make sure he wouldn't flinch. He didn't. <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, my goodness. It's all true about Stevie Wonder. <laughs> the blind That's genius. Really cool. <laughs> um, and then another time I got to interview him. And let me tell you the coolest thing Stevie Wonder said to me in an interview, which I, which... It was at a time when, um, I forget the name of the, the album, but I remember the, the single off it was called You Will Know. It's a beautiful song, by the way. And his music was getting very, very uh, synth heavy at that time. 
He was doing more of it in that sort of print style of all on your own in the studio. And, mm. you know, I asked him about, you know, instruments versus synths. And he's like, instruments are synths. He's like, you know, what is a trumpet? You know, someone was trying to make the sound of a elephant bleeding. You know, yeah, what is yeah. a drum? Someone was trying to replicate a sound that they heard in nature. So instrument is one level of synth and electronics is another level of synth. And I always thought that was a super refreshing and an interesting way of, of thinking of that. That's so cool. Man, that's such a great quote. <laughs> that's really great. For people who feel like the cultural journalism thing is a vague description, like how would you sum it up? Like, what do you do? <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, what, what, what do I do? I mean, I've, I have been largely, as, as a freelancer, a critic and, and feature writer, interview writer for all sorts of publications. I mean, back in Philly, um, for a number of years, I was, the, I was freelance, but I was basically one of two pop music critics for the Philadelphia Inquirer, which was the daily newspaper back when daily newspapers were a thing. Mm. In fact... So this is really crazy. And, and newspapers don't spend the money to do this anymore. When I was reviewing a concert, a pop concert, I would have to phone in the review and dictate it to a copy desk um, by 11.15 p.m. So I actually had to be writing the whole review as the event was in progress. Whoa, that's and crazy. Then call in a copy desk and read it aloud, and they're like, I don't understand what you mean there. And you're like editing it on the fly, and you hang up the phone by 11.15, and at 6 a.m. the next morning, it hits your doorstep. Man, that's wild. Yeah. That's so cool. <laughs> and I guess in, in, in some sense, the uh, you know people who are writing for CNN.com or whatever are, are, are working at that kind of a, a pace now, but at least like their fingers are on their words. <laughs> yeah, totally. So you've just completed a residency in this remote town in Iceland, and the, the residency is at a place called the Fish Factory. Could you, actually, before I ask you to explain it, I thought your newsletter with the images and your writing was such a cool and immersive window into this experience, and it was really beautiful. So I'm hoping we can show a few images that you took from there in a second. But before we do that, can you give us a quick summary of the residency and what you applied to do there? Sure, sure. And then we'll look at some pictures. Um, so the Fish yeah. Factory is a, a residency, multimedia arts residency in a extremely remote um, town in eastern Iceland. Uh, it's about 400 miles, 500 miles as far as you can get from Reykjavik, which is where most people go when they, they go to Iceland, or at least base their trip out of. Uh -huh. And uh, it's a 200-person town. I'll show you the next, uh, the next photo, actually, is the town. And it's a town that was primarily a fishing town, um, but over the past 20 years, uh, the Icelandic fishing industry has become really consolidated. And so whereas it used to be that there were dozens of small fjord towns, seaside towns with a fish processing plant, they all got bought up by conglomerates. And now there's, you know, three or four central processing plants in the, in the country. And the lifeblood of these little towns is really 
um, withered away. And the, in this town, when the, when the fish factory closed and all the jobs were lost, within five years, the population declined by 50%. Wow. And so uh, a group of young artistic souls, you know, now in their 30s, decided to petition the government and raise money and resurrect this becoming decrepit old fish factory and turn it into an artist's residency. I'm showing and, uh, now, you, sorry, Jim, I'm showing now a photo of the acrobats. Um, we showed some of the, um, the building, the facility and the town. So mm -hmm. I've jumped over to the acrobats photo and those were your neighbors, right? Oh yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> at, so because of COVID, we did not have nearly as many uh, artists there uh, as, as are, are, are normally there. So normally um, there's up to like 10 artists um, and you're housed in two houses. There were just five of us, and we were housed in one, one of the two houses. Uh -huh. And it was me and an Icelandic troupe of, of acrobats who were too um, romantically, as well as acrobatically, professionally involved nice, couples. Nice. Um, this, is, this, is the, uh, this is the professional, not the romantic that you're seeing uh, in this image. <laughs> so now we're showing a photo of the recording studio. Did you get to hang around there at all? Uh, once, so, so Vinny, one of the three folks who, who runs this place, and he's originally from Ireland, but now is an Icelandic uh, co-citizen, um, he is an expert in analog recording. This is all analog recording studio. Mm. And uh, when I was there, there was a, a local Icelandic uh, rapper girl who was recording. So I got to hang oh, cool. around a little for that. And Vinny was making the beats. But... All the all the Icelandic groups have started to to record there, um, nice. and and the big ones are gonna record there. It's just a matter of of time before you get a, a Sigur Rós or someone like that. Yeah, totally. Recording there, it's a very tight knit uh, musical community in Iceland, and there's a big space in the factory where uh, they do concerts as well. Oh, cool! Um, so now I've jumped to a photo of what looks like a workshop. Yeah, yeah. So the factory, the parts of it that have been refurbed beyond the recording studio are all different workshops. So there's a ceramic workshop, there's a metal shop, there's a wood shop with really top of the line equipment. So whatever your artistic specialty is, you know, if you apply and get accepted, they have got a lot of the stuff you you need. Wow, this sounds like a dream work. Uh, yeah. <laughs> let's see, what's good? Oh, the outdoor photos, I really love. I'm, I'm super glad I get to show people these photos. So this, this is the oldest uh, public swimming pool in Iceland, and it takes about a 30-minute hike from a road to get to it, and you can't see it from the road, and you never know whether you're going to get to it. But when you do, it's pretty pretty spectacular. Yeah, it looks And there amazing. were a total of three of us there. The surroundings look so crazy. Um, I'm showing some sheep. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, so this this photo is from the from the north of uh, of Iceland near Lake Mývatn, which is a uh, volcanic uh, terrain. Yeah, this reminded me a little of what I imagine Ireland to be like with these stone uh -huh. walls and yeah. and sheep. They had a this is this is really awesome. I had breakfast on this farm, and. The, the breakfast room had a plate glass window that looked into the milking room where your breakfast Ooh. milk was coming from. So like you were literally, literally like drinking milk with a cow's ass in your face. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. 
So I think this is the final photo of some uh, glacier-looking. Oh yes, thing. this is at the. Uh, it's called the Yukosarlan Glacier Lagoon, and these icebergs just break off of of the glacier, and um, it's ever changing, and they're floating. And it's, this is about eight thirty in the morning. It's just a spectacular, and I'm sure if you stayed there all day, the colors and the light would just blow you away. Wow, crazy! So that was a. Small slideshow from Jim's trip to Iceland for the Fish Factory residency. Man, I'm so glad I get to show those photos because that's really cool. For the folks listening on the podcast, you can find this show on YouTube, uh, Coffee with Bao. Just, just search for it so you can check out that stuff. Or you can find Jim at his website, jimgladstone.com. And uh, there's lots of links to his work. Let's take a little break. Hey, friends. Not sure if you know this, but I serve on the board of a nonprofit called the Slants Foundation. We're a volunteer-driven organization that provides resources, scholarships, and mentorship to Asian American creatives looking to incorporate activism into their art. We also produce events that feature these talented creators. Our last virtual concert helped over 500 people register to vote for the very first time. You can learn about and support the Slants Foundation by visiting theslants.org. Thanks, and see you soon. Let's get back to the show. I don't think we got a full description of what you came to Iceland to like focus on. Can, can you brief us on that? Sure, sure. So a uh, long time ago, back in 2001, I, I published a novel. And six months after that was published, uh, I had an idea for another novel that has been rattling around my head for the next 20 years. Um, wow. And because I've had so much other uh, stuff going on in my life, mostly good stuff, I haven't had the ability to hunker down and, and focus on it in the way that I would like to, not just in terms of time, but in terms of really the, the mental focus. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm a stimulus junkie and I'm always craving novelty. So to sort of move into the space of writing a novel, which is like, I always talk about it as like, you know, swimming in the ocean and not being able to see the, the distant shore that you're going to. Like, it's, it's very hard to keep yourself dedicated to that. Um, yeah. And this was an opportunity to be in a tiny place without a car where this is what I would, this is what I would do. And I, I, I really got a lot of headway. I mean, I had started this novel five or six times over the past 20 years and got maybe 20 pages in. And then when I went back to it, I had to start again. So I have five <laughs> different first 20 pages, none of which are the same. And now I came back with a bolus of work that's big enough that it's it's hard for me to ignore and step away from. It's like, a, it's like I have a boulder instead of a, a pebble that I can kick under the bed. There's this there's this boulder of prose sitting here challenging me to get back to it every day. And That's I, so and cool. I, and I have been since I, I got back. Yeah. So now that you're back and you're working on your normal stuff, have you adjusted your process in any way to so that you can dedicate some time every day to the novel? To be honest, I, I won't I can't say every day at this point yet. Um, but I've only been back for a few weeks after having been away for six. So, but I have been working on it and I have been thinking about it. And the fact of the matter is there's just, there's enough there that it has a certain gravity 
yeah. to yeah. it. You know, I, I can't ignore it. It's not a maybe I'm writing a novel thing. It's it, there's enough there that that it demands to be to be worked with. I mean, the trick is that it 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 it's like living a second life. It's like living a parallel life, and that shift is very hard to make. I mean, effectively, when I went to Iceland, effectively I was going to a place where there was no life, and my primary life was the stories of the novel. Mm, yeah, mm, right. I see. I, and and that's why I really liked having that degree of isolation because it was one life. Here I'm in two. Crazy, man. That's so cool. <laughs> Your work, I think you've always been like a huge proponent of creatives from the LGBT community. And um, I think that's a big part of your identity as well as your work. And I, I assume things have changed a lot in the past couple of decades as you, you developed as a person, but also your work developed in writing about people's creations. Can you talk about the journey over the years about what's changed and you know how the broader society has changed, but how you've changed as well? Sure, sure. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a good question. And it's weird because timing is so strange. I mean, I came out when I was 19 years old, a sophomore in college. and It was 1985. So basically, you know, I'm part of this small slice of people who came out well, you're laughing because you were like born then or something. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just thinking the 80s was. Let no me joke. see your Pampers, Bow. Um, uh, <laughs> I got him. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm part of this small set of people who we literally came out into the middle of AIDS. Yeah. Um, a lot of people didn't come out then even though they knew they were gay because of AIDS, because it was such a stigma. But those of us who, who did come out then, it, it was a big part of your identity because AIDS was just in all the headlines. And, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so there was one, one thing you had to do that folks don't necessarily need to do now is you had to establish a gay identity that, had to, that was separate from AIDS. And then you had to establish a, a human identity that wasn't just gay. Whoa. You know, so it's like it's like a set of, of nesting dolls. Whoa, that's uh, so fascinating. Really, really interesting. How, how does that tie in with, like, the evolution of the cultural product that people have been putting out over the last couple decades? Well, it's really interesting. In the, in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, literature about gay men and gay experiences had a really hot moment in the marketplace because mm. there was so much news about the gay community um, that that was sort of paralleled with an interest in art that was specifically uh, yeah. addressing the gay community. And that petered out, and, and which I think is a good thing. I mean, it, it's pretty hard now to... If you read five contemporary novels... Two of them, at least, are going to have a queer character in mm. them, whether mm. it's the main character or not, whether it's an, a novel about being queer or not. It's just, it's just there in, in everything, as opposed to being the, the focus of the work. 
And I, I still think it's important to have some works out there um, that are focused on very specific issues and specific niches. There's been some really interesting work, literary work done lately on the trans community. Right. Um, and right. it's it's great to have a fictional ways to access that that knowledge and that wisdom, which is, you know, outside the realm of what you or I might think about from day to day. Yeah. Um, yeah. But in general, I would say that there's not so much of this niche of gay fiction, gay yeah, yeah. storytelling. And, so it's and less niche to me, that's gay a good. Content. To me, that's a good thing. Totally is. Do you ever feel like in 2020, there's like, do you have any sort of like cautious or, or hesitancy to allow the gay label to label your your work? Is that something you think about? Uh, I don't, I don't think about it now. I don't think about it at all. I mean, it's, it's interesting when I was, when I was starting out and I was young and I was writing for places that were, I, I write for some niche gay publications. Now, when I started out, I was writing for places that were totally mainstream daily newspapers, so on and so yeah. forth. Yeah. And I always, you know, felt glad to inject a bit of what I felt was gay sensibility or more importantly, gay sensitivity into that work. So that's all. That's sort of always been my approach. I mean, I remember like in 1988, I did a phone interview with the Pet Shop Boys. No. And they, they they were they were still in the closet. Whoa, publicly. dude! And so I I asked them about like the homoerotic lyrics, and they completely denied it, and and wow. blew it off. So you know, it's been really nice to watch them grow up. That's awesome. <laughs> that's such a great story. Uh, I'm going to show an image of your website, your homepage. So this is Jim's website, jimgladstone.com. It's got his professional like corporate work, but it's also got a very, very active blog and um, a lot of the cool like books and stuff that he's published in the past. Um, like I said, your blog is super active. You're always working on something. Um, how do you like choose what you work on since you're, a lot of that stuff is freelance? Well... You 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 forego working on your novel. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I mean, look, I've got a regular gig at a, a at the Bay Area Reporter here in San Francisco to do their theater criticism. Um, so that's coming out on a regular schedule. And then beyond that, then I can pick and choose my projects. Of course, I have to pitch them and get someone who wants to run them. And I mean, one of the weird things is that I've always I've always been a really good pitcher. And when I was young, though, I could go into the the newspaper and with a with a list of ten pitches, ex hoping to get one or two, and I would get seven said yes to, which was great when I needed the seventy five dollars I would get for each of those articles to pay my rent. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But. Gradually, you sort of become a, a a pitch machine, and you're and you have trouble saying no to things, and your brain gets very uh, fragmented, and and you end up doing work that none of which is the quality that you'd really like it to be. So, thank you, marketing, for giving me the the financial wherewithal to be a little more choosy in what I take on now. Yeah. So this yeah. week, I'm working on. A, I, I interviewed a guy who wrote a really cool book about cheese. Because I wanted to. <laughs> That's awesome. And, and, and I found a cheese publication to sell it to. <laughs> nice. 
I mentioned earlier, you're like a voracious consumer of pop culture and, and other people's creative product. And I was wondering if you could make any recommendations for um, people who listen or watch this show. Well, reading wise, um, I just read a book out in paperback by Alexander Chi, um, who's a Korean American writer. I think it's called How to Write an Autobiographical Novel. It's there are actually a couple of essays in it on writing, but it's a book of essays. It's just really, really sharp, really well-written. Um, I think it'll appeal to anyone creative. I think it'll appeal to anyone who has a foot in more than one identity, be it uh, a gender identity or a ethnic identity. Um, yeah, cool. The, my, the best essay in it is about the time he spent working as a personal waiter in the home of uh, William F. Buckley. Crazy. Who's <laughs> <laughs> was like the arch conservative nemesis of all things gay in the mid 80s. And she is gay. And um, wow. and it was really active in ACT UP at the same time as he was doing that. And so he feels like super torn because he kind of likes working for the Buckleys. It's it's a, it's really great. I appreciate that really thoughtful recommendation because that's definitely like a lot of the themes around this show, you know, and I think that's like spot on for people who are interested in this show. So that's, I appreciate that. You have, I, I think that everything that you've, sorry for the noise, I live in the city. Welcome to downtown Los Angeles. But I was saying you, your work has such confidence and self-awareness and um, a really like comfortable type of humor. And I, I like, really appreciate that in, in all of the stuff that you make. Um, I was wondering if you have like a tip for me or, or in general for the audience about coming into my own character in my work, because I feel like that comes through so well in yours. Mm. Well, I think that in your latest album, Perpetual Heartbreak, I mean, you've definitely, uh, it, it feels closer to you as a person than 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 any of your previous work, all of which I I, I love. Um, in fact, in some ways, I think Perpetual Heartbreak is is a more um, difficult album in that it demands a focus and attention to its its specificity and a lot of the crystalline details that it has in it. You know, it's not an album that uh, can really just wash over you. And, and I mean, it's pretty clear to me that it's a much more personal piece of work. And I, I think the real challenge for, for all of us is to figure out a way to be intimate and personal in our art and communicate, you know, what feels to us like truth without, you know, making ourselves into this completely porous object, you know, that has to interact with the world, with all of our nerves totally wow. exposed. You know, what, how do you be as honest as you can be without, you know, serving yourself up to be? Yeah. Steamrolled. <laughs> totally. That's such a crazy balance. It's like, it's, it's really difficult. And I think just being mindful of that stuff is, is a good start, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, my, my first novel that I wrote 20 years ago now, God, um, is very, uh, it's much more autobiographical, although it's 
by no means purely autobiographical, uh-huh. um, much more autobiographical than what I'm writing now. But I actually, part of it is because I have 20 more years of, of life and I know a lot about more stuff than me. <laughs> <laughs> Jim, I appreciate that uh, that reading of my album, and I didn't expect you to bring that up, but I, I thank you. <laughs> oh, oh, you're you're, you're um, welcome. What is a personal or professional skill that you're trying to level up on now? Um, it's really interesting because there's certain things that I feel like got past me, and that I just can't. Not that I can't go get a hold of them, but it's like, is that what's worth my energy now? And oh, some wow. of that is stuff that you're really good at, like certain programming and uh, design, a lot of computer software skills that I just didn't pick up on my own. And even though at, at times I've been directing people who have been using those skills in the service of an, an idea and I was orchestrating it, I remember early in my career as a creative director, when I had designers working under me, I had the impulse to learn the programs they were using. And then I, and I talked to them and I decided it would be better for me not to, because yep. I want to tell them what I want to have expressed. And I want to speak to them in a different language than the language they're working in to try yeah. to get a, a, a synergy. And also I didn't want to over direct them by saying, you know, use this filter, use this, you know, tool. But in retrospect, especially as we become more alone and work remotely and stuff like, oh, I would love yeah. to be able to Photoshop shit or um, do do great page layouts and stuff like that. Uh, and uh, what I am trying to do um, and I'm succeeding at is reconnecting with with reading. I mean, honestly, for the past 10 years, I probably read more than most people I know. But I know my brain has been shattered by the internet. And I have brought on software onto my phone and onto my desktop computers that block access to apps and websites other than some particular tool websites for uh, huge portions of, of the day. It forces your mind to stay in one place a little longer. Can you share like one or two of those tools that you've been using well, to help I, you focus? You know, I've cycled through some and in the end I've come back to a program called Freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can whitelist sites, you can blacklist sites, and you can cut apps. And Crazy. You, can, you can set it to automatically go on every day from this time to this time, or you can, you know, start a session right now for the next 90 minutes however you want to work it. And you can you can cheat and fuck it up if you want, but it at least builds some guardrails. Yeah. I mean, I you know, it's what's really interesting is the first time, uh, you know, you're working on whatever, and then you type, uh, oh, I'm going to check Facebook. You, t- you hit Facebook, and then this green screen comes up, and it says, you are blocked from this. Enjoy <laughs> your freedom. And, you know, your feeling isn't enjoyment. Your feeling is actually shame that you had that impulse to go to Facebook for no good reason. Self-parenting, huh? (laughs) (laughs) That's so cool. Um, Awesome. So I think we're out of time, but I wanted to remind our our audience that uh, I've been chatting with Jim Gladstone. He is creative director and author 
cultural journalist and critic, and he's working on a new novel, which I think is a very long-term project. <laughs> but you can visit Jim on his website at jimgladstone.com. That's J-I-M-G-L-A-D-S-T-O-N-E.com. Jim, would you stay on the line while I give a little outro, and then I'll say a proper goodbye to you? Sure thing. Awesome. Guys, thank you so much for hanging out with us and um, checking out Jim's brain. <laughs> if you like the show, please support me by subscribing and leaving some feedback and um, wherever you consume this show. Also, if you can financially support this show and me and making all this content, you can buy me a coffee at coffeewithbao.com. And Jim and I super appreciate you having coffee with Bao and Jim. <laughs> Cheers. Thank, thank you, guys. You want to see our beautiful mugs while we chat? Coffee with Bao is also available in video. Just search for it on YouTube and hit the subscribe button.